Well, I am not a, a huge history buff uh, like some of you, Zach Frazier. Um, I'm not great with uh, names. I'm not great with dates. Uh, but I do love history. I love what history has to teach us. And I especially love church history. I think there's two reasons for this for me. Uh, probably pretty universal reasons. But the first one is that there is nothing new under the sun, right? We have a lot to learn from history because as, as the cliche goes, history does often repeat itself. And we see trends repeated. We see, like in church history, we see heresies repeated, just kind of taking on a, a new shape or a new form. Um, so, so that's one reason why I think it's really helpful to study history because history does repeat itself and there's nothing new under the sun. I think the second reason that's really important, and this one might be overlooked a little bit, is that we have to know where we've come from. And as, as Christians in America, especially as, as American evangelicals, we have to understand how we got to where we're at today, right? Like we have to understand the ideas and the things, the trends that have shaped where we're at. And, and I, I'm not talking about like, you need to go be this church history expert and drill into all the minutia. Like we're Presbyterians. And if you like, as we're studying for our ordination exams, there's this like crazy chart. I don't have all that stuff down. I mean, it's all the splits and schisms just within like American Presbyterianism to how we got to, it's crazy, right? It's, and again, I'm talking more of like, we need a 30,000 foot like flyover view of how we got to where we're at. So for us, that would be like, we're American evangelicals. We're Presbyterian and reformed. What does that mean? How did we get to there? We're Protestants, right? Like we come out of the reformation and fundamentally we're Christians, right? Like we got to, we need to understand where, where that all started. Like how, are, why are we Christians? And then why do we attach those other labels to us? And, and how do we identify? And, you know, for the like, oh, I just read my Bible crowd. Like, I'm sorry, but you don't just re like, you're not, you don't just exist in your own little like Christian bubble. Like there's so many things that have shaped who you are and how you even read the Bible. Um, and we have to understand those things. So, okay, that rant is over. <laughs> um, but I think these things are really, there's, it's two sides of the same coin uh, in, in, in looking at this. So how did, how do we get, how did we get from the Bible times, right? Till, till today, how do we get from Jesus to today? Like what all has transpired? So we look at that and then how do we get from where we are today back to faithfulness to Christ, right? We have to, we have to look at it from there to here and from here back to there. Like we have to understand what has shaped us in between. And I would argue that we're actually doing this all the time, whether we realize it or not. Um, as we're asking these questions, I'm asking these questions as I preach. Uh, we're asking these questions in our community groups. We're asking these questions in our men's and women's times. As we study the scriptures together, we're, we're constantly looking at these things. We're constantly analyzing these things. We're constantly making arguments for like, why do we think this is what the Bible says, right? And that doesn't just come out of like, oh, we're just reacting to like something that happened in the last week in America, right? Like, even all of these events that are happening, like we have to understand this, this bigger picture. And I think this should really be second nature for us as Christians. Uh, in other words, I don't need to come up here like every single time I preach and give you this big, like lengthy overview of all the things I just said, right? That would be really boring and get old. But it is helpful to be reminded of these things, and especially as, as we look at uh, this text for today, uh, 
I want to kind of focus more explicitly on some of these dynamics. So I want to go back in time a little bit and do a little history overview. About 20 years ago, which feels like ancient history, <laughs> I was in college and I was given a book by uh, the, our staff worker with Campus Crusade. Uh, I think this book would have been way over my head in a lot of ways uh, at the time and not to discourage you younger folks, um, but they're from, you know, feeling like, oh, I can't understand these things. But I think there is, there really is value in lessons learned over many years. Um, but you can't, uh, you can't, I'm not saying you can't understand and apply these things in your life today. Um, but I did, I did learn some, some lessons over the years that I think makes now this book mean a lot more to me. And this book is called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, this book has made a trek around the world. <laughs> uh, I brought it with me to China, and it sat on my bookshelf for a decade, and I never read it. I brought it back to America, and I finally, after all these years, um, dug into it this week. Now, if you have the ESV and you look at the text for today, the subheading there for this passage is the cost of discipleship. Um, and it was a great uh, time for me to finally crack this book open. Uh, the Cost of Disciple Discipleship is written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor. Uh, he resisted the Nazi regime and was eventually martyred uh, just before the end of the war. That's a very, very, that's like a 100,000 foot flyover view of his life, but uh, very important and uh, in, in influential pastor uh, in Germany at that time. Had a lot of connections with uh, some churches in America and, and things like that. But in the book, he's actually addressing a problem in the church in Germany in his day. And he points back to Luther and how the church in, in his time has really muddied the waters of Luther's message. Uh, and as, this is a, a similar thing to what Luther did when he spoke out against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. He's saying, here's this message and you guys have twisted it, right? You've changed it. And here's, here's Bonhoeffer like a couple hundred years later on the heels of, of Luther having done all these things. And he's saying, here's what this you know, forefather of ours has done to fight for the faith. And here we are like making it about something that it's not. So again, just even that just brief historical snapshot, like that's why it's important that we have to, we have to study history. We have to know our theology. We have to understand how things can go off the rails, right? And how we can get, get sidetracked so that history doesn't repeat itself. We'll get into that in a little bit, and we'll see a little more clearly what the issue was that Bonhoeffer was addressing related to discipleship. But first, let's go to our text for this morning and see from God's word what Jesus has to say to us about the cost of following him. Luke, uh, Luke 14, 25 to 35. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. So what's the problem that Jesus addresses here? It's whether or not he is number one in our lives, right? James uh, talked on this last week, in, uh, especially in verses 18 through 20, uh, where these people are making excuses. They didn't want to accept the invitation to the banquet. Uh, one of them said, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the issue was, is Jesus the number one priority, right? Is Jesus first priority in our lives? And Bonhoeffer's, going, coming back to Bonhoeffer, his critique of the church in Germany, Germany analyzes this passage and, and several parallel passages as he address, addresses the issue of cheap grace versus costly grace. The first chapter in the book is called Costly Grace. And he argues that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and a departure from everything Luther taught about what it means to be right with God through faith in Christ. And I will let him tell it in his own words. He said, when the Reformation came, the providence of God raised Martin Luther to restore the gospel of pure, costly grace. Luther passed through the monastery. He was a monk, and all, his, and all this was part of the divine plan. Luther had left all to follow Christ on the path of absolute obedience. He had renounced the world in order to live the Christian life. He had learned obedience to Christ and to his church, because only he who is obedient can believe. The call to the monastery demanded of Luther the complete surrender of his life. But God shattered all his hopes. He showed him through the scriptures that the following of Christ is not the achievement of merit or not the achievement or merit of a select few, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. Monasticism had transformed the humble work of discipleship into the meritorious activity of the saints and the self-renunciation of discipleship into the flagrant spiritual self-assertion of the religious. The world had crept into the very heart of the monastic life and was once more making havoc. The monk's attempt to flee from the world turned out to be a subtle form of love for the world. The bottom having thus been knocked out of the religious life, Luther laid hold upon grace. Just as the whole world of monasticism was crashing about him in ruins, he saw God in Christ stretching forth his hand to save. He grasped that hand in faith, believing that after all, nothing we can do is of any avail, however good a life we live. 
The grace which gave itself to him was a costly grace, and it shattered his whole existence. Once more, he must leave his nets and follow. The first time was when he entered the monastery, when he had left everything behind except his pious self. This time, even that was taken from him. He obeyed the call, not through any merit of his own, but simply through the grace of God. Luther did not hear the word, of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven, so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. No, Luther had to leave the monastery and go back to the world, not because the world in itself was good and holy, but because even the monastery was only a part of the world. And a little bit later, he says, in the depth of his misery, Luther had grasped by faith the free and unconditional forgiveness of all his sins. That experience taught him that this grace had cost him his very life and must continue to cost him the same price day by day. We're all accustomed to asking these cost-benefit questions, aren't we? What is it going to cost me, and what am I going to get out of it? That's why you read the one-star reviews on Amazon to see if the item that you're going to buy is worth it, right? Is it going to break in the first two weeks? Is it just some piece of junk, or is this something that's going to be worth my investment? But this mentality can quite easily creep into our Christian discipleship. We'll ask, what is the minimum that I have to do to be a Christian? To be saved and to still do my own thing. To enjoy my life in this world. And this is no doubt a temptation that we all face. And Jesus addresses that very clearly here as he does in other passages. I just want to say a quick word as we're digging into this about how we deal with difficult passages. We, we talk about this here and there. Um, really, this, this principle that Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. When we come to something difficult in Scripture, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, oh, this contradicts this other passage, right? So, like, it must not be true. Like, none of this can be true because these things seem difficult. No, we have to take things, and especially this, this language that Jesus talks about, you know, counting the costs and giving up everything and hating. Like, we have to understand this in the context of other passages that are saying similar things. So I'll explain that a little bit more in a second here. But we see this need right away uh, to, to do this in verse 26. Uh, the scene here is great crowds are accompanying Jesus, and he turns to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we probably read this and we want to say, What do you mean, Jesus? Hate my family and hate my own life or I can't follow you? Now, this is not the um, this is not the reverse scenario where this is not like where, where Jesus is talking about where we are the ones that are hated by others. It, like a lot, a lot of times, what Jesus is talking about is we're the object of other people's hate. Now he's saying he's telling us here that we have to be the ones to do the hating, right? So we read that and we're we're kind of like puzzled by this and we're wondering what Jesus is saying here. 
So this is something that Jesus demands of us before we would follow him. The, the reverse scenario is something that happens after we begin to follow Jesus, right? We follow Jesus and we receive hatred from the world. Now he's saying, before you would even come and follow me, you have to hate all of these other people and yourself, right? That's a whole different ballgame. So again, we have to ask, can Jesus, like, can Jesus really be serious here about this, about this type of hatred? Hate your father and mother, which would be a violation of the fifth commandment, which would get you stoned, right, according to the Old Testament law. Hate your wife. When Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Hate your children. When Paul told Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Hate your brothers and sisters. Go read the whole book of 1 John talking about loving your brothers and sisters. And hate yourself. Jesus himself reiterated that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Like we should love our own lives. We should love ourselves. But maybe what Jesus said in John 12 will be helpful. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, clearly here, hate cannot mean hatred in the sense of detesting something or being hostile to something. That would completely contradict what Jesus commands in other places and what the rest of Scripture commands. This is not to hate your parents in, in terms of being hostile to them and detesting them. If you're familiar with kind of this conversation, it's, this is that type of, of hatred, detesting, is clearly not the only type of hatred that is mentioned in, in Scripture. Here it means to disregard or to disfavor in comparison to something greater. It's a, it's a matter of comparison. It's not, a, it's not an ultimate either or. And in terms of that comparison of something greater, Jesus is that something greater, right? He's saying that you need to love him more than all these other things so that your love for him makes your love for those other things look like hatred in comparison. So our main question in light of that that we need to wrestle with and that we need to answer is, is Jesus number one in my life? And how do I know? Do I hate even my own life in comparison? Am I willing to lose my own life because Jesus is that precious to me? If you answered no to any of these questions, the goal is not for you to beat yourself up. It's not for you to leave here with your head hung saying, well, I just can't do it. I can't live the Christian life. I can't love Jesus enough. I guess I'm just a no good, filthy sinner, and I'm just going to go home and have a pity party. Rather, it's to seek God by his grace. It's to ask him to, to show you how you can grow in these areas, how you can love him more, how you can have all of those other relationships, all those other things in your life appear as hatred in comparison to how much you love him. So that's the first challenge from Jesus about the value of our human relationships in comparison to our relationship with him. Now he takes it a step further in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here he's not calling us just to hate our own life. He's calling us to give up our own life, to completely crucify ourselves. 
Again, going back to Bonhoeffer in chapter 4, the chapter is titled Discipleship and the Cross. And he argues in this chapter chapter, that suffering and rejection sum up the whole of the cross of Jesus. Suffering and rejection, those are the two words that he keeps coming back to. And then he goes on to describe what is meant by us taking up our crosses and following Jesus. And that this ends with a very famous quote. It's on the cover of the worship guide. You've probably heard this before. But he says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I said 20 years ago, as a new Christian, much of this book would have been way over my head. But this reality, this reality that he just shared there did not escape me. And it should not escape any of us who seek to follow Jesus. For me, following Christ did cost me a lot of relationships. It cost me a lot of friendships. And it did cost me worldly pursuits as well. But it was so worth it. And I'm not sure where you might be at this morning in your journey with Christ. But if you are a Christian, you have been met with the cross at the beginning of your communion with Christ And perhaps for some of you, this has not, at this point in your life, this has not yet felt like a hard cross to bear. But it will, and it must. As we continue on here, we should recognize that Jesus is speaking here to those who would just begin to follow him for the first time. And so there is a bit of an evangelistic element to these truths, for sure. But let us not forget that these truths apply to us whether we follow Jesus for two years or 20 years or 50 years. And as Luther talked about, it's that that day by day taking up the cross, that day by day dying to self. Jesus then goes on to give two examples of those who did not properly count the cost. The first one is someone who's going to build a tower. He starts to build, he lays the foundation, but he didn't calculate the cost of what it would take to finish it. The second is of a king going out to war, who's going with 10,000, coming against 20,000. How's he going to respond? Is he going to send for terms of peace, or is he going to go and get slaughtered? And the truth in both of these situations is that there is a disastrous consequence to be avoided. And those consequences are actually quite easily avoidable. First, if you're the builder, you have your accountant go and do an honest assessment of whether you can finish this project, right? Like, that's just strictly numbers. It should be pretty easy to figure that out, whether you'll, you'll get bankrupt and whether this will cause you uh, great shame. James reminded me this week of the uh, seemingly never-ending uh, 41, 
440 441 bridge thing in in nina appleton that like went on forever and that's a really good example but i have a, a better one that i was going to use <laughs> so um but that that was a great one thanks james um they did finally finish it right right i mean it you know it took a while but i have a better one of of one that is is completely unfinished and brought shame so when we lived in Quinming, uh city in southwest china i had a friend uh, we were out one day, we were on the, on the north side of town, and he's like, hey, do you see that building there? And like, look over on the other side of the, the road, there's this like massive, it's probably, I don't know, like 10 or 12 stories high concrete structure, and it's just like the skeleton of this building that was, was going up, right? And that's all it is, like, it's been like that for like 10 years or whatever, like it had been for about 10 years at that time. And I was like, yeah, what's going on there? He's like, well, and I don't even remember what the what the building was going to be. It was probably more than just like an apartment complex. Um, but he said they started building this building and it was, it was next to a military complex. And they realized like halfway, like the government came to them and said, you can't build this building because people are going to be able to see over into this military complex and things that are happening. So they just completely shut it down. Well, the problem is once you've got this gigantic structure like it's going to cost you way more to tear that thing down than it's going to be you know to to do anything else so like and it's just this huge eyesore right and if you if you know about asian culture and kind of saving face like this is a blemish on this city like this is this is a like points to the leadership of the city and just communication and like this is not a good sign, right? Like this just looks terrible and it brings tremendous shame upon everyone involved. Like that's a pretty crazy picture of what Jesus is talking about here. It wasn't just like they got the foundation done, right? Like this entire structure is up and ready to be done and then it just gets completely shut down because they couldn't finish it. Kind of an interesting example there. So Jesus here in his... In these two examples, he's saying to count the cost or be mocked, to count the cost or be massacred, which would have happened to the king going out with 10,000 against 20,000. And these are not insignificant consequences. Then in verse 33, he reiterates everything that he has been saying. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I want to read one last quote from Bonhoeffer. Speaking to this issue. He says, Obedience to the call of Jesus never lies within our own power. If, for instance, we give away all our possessions, that act is not in itself the obedience he demands. In fact, such a step might be the precise opposite of obedience to Jesus, for we might then be choosing a way of life for ourselves, some Christian ideal or some ideal of Franciscan poverty. Indeed, in the very act of giving away his goods, a man can give allegiance to himself and to an ideal and not to the command of Jesus he is not set free from his own self, but still more enslaved to himself. The issue here is not in the amount of things that are given up or are left behind or are renounced, but in the quality and in the decisiveness of that renouncing. Let me say that again. 
The issue is not the amount of things that are given up or left behind or renounced, but in the quality and decisiveness of that renouncing. When we kicked off our Luke series again this fall, the first week in October, we began this second half of Luke from 951 onward. Jesus sets his face to go to, the, go to Jerusalem. He's, he's going to the cross. The cross is squarely in his sights. We, we started that section off with Luke 9, 57 to 62. And the heading of that section, similarly to this one, is the cost of following Jesus. Here in this passage in, in 9, 57 to 62, people similarly make excuses about why they can't follow Jesus yet. The first one says, I need to go and bury my father. The second one says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. It's interesting here because that word say farewell is the same word as Jesus uses here in 1433 for renounce. Okay, so Jesus' response in 962 shows that he is after decisiveness on our part. He said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There is no, let me think about it and get back to you tomorrow when Jesus demands our lives and our allegiances. He tells the man who wants to first go and say farewell to his family. He says that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that parallels very closely with what Jesus is saying here in chapter 14, verses 34 and 35 about the usefulness of salt. He says, if salt loses its flavor, it is useless. This phrase here in verse 30... Where am I at? Sorry. (laughs) In verse um, 35, where it says, it is of no use, that word, that's the word that's translated into as it is of no use, is the same word as the word for fit in chapter 9, verse 62. He says, if anyone puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he is not fit for the kingdom of God. So you're unfit for the kingdom of God if you start to journey with Jesus and then you turn back. In the same way, salt has no use, right, if it loses its saltiness. So there's this idea of being fit or being useful. I think, again, the emphasis here is on the decisiveness and the life-altering nature of following Jesus. He says, don't lose your saltiness. Don't look back after you've put your hand to the plow. And the message here is not just try harder, everyone, so that Jesus will be happy with you. The power to obey and to keep following Jesus and to stay salty doesn't come from within you. It comes from him. And when we realize, as Bonhoeffer said, that the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ, when we realize that, and when we realize the words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, when we realize that those are a source of joy and not of dread, then we have understood what the Christian life is all about. Then we have ears to hear, as Jesus commands us here at the end of verse 35. He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. And this let him hear is an imperative. You could, you know, if I was going to translate this like for maximum effect, I would say, he who has ears to let him hear, and then just in all caps, hear, right? Hear what he says. This is a command. Hear what Jesus says. And this is the command to us for all of Jesus' teaching, for the whole word of God. So let us be cost-counting, salty hearers of his word. Let every word sink into our ears, right? That we might hear and that we might be changed, that we might do these things, that our earthly relationships might look like hatred in comparison to our love for Christ. This is a tremendous challenge for us. But we need to be those who hear. We need to be those who obey and those to be those who are changed so that we might be able to go out and make Christ known to a lost and dying world. Let us pray. Father, this is not an easy word for us. As we think about evaluating our human relationships in comparison to you, as we think about taking up our cross and following you, as we think about renouncing all that we have, as we think about the willingness to, to lose our lives, to lose our possessions, for your sake and for your kingdom. Father, we should, we should tremble. We should realize that there is nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing in our own hands that can contribute to that type of discipleship taking place. But as we saw from Bonhoeffer, let us be reminded that the cross is not some painful ending to this life. The cross is, is a blessing and a joy at the beginning of our communion with Christ. God, may that be true for each and every one of us. May we be those who seek to count the cost, who seek to, to lay down everything we have for you. God, may we be those who, who live out true Christian discipleship, who love, who serve, who make you known to those around us. Father, would you do this work in us by your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.